and welcome to the Liviana, where in this first episode I will be talking about none other than Cicero's Denatura Deorum. As a lot of my students know, this book holds a special place in my heart, as it's where my career in classics began, really, whilst I was still a theologian, um, and it united my passions for ancient religion and the classical world, so this is where they first properly collided. Because of this, I could talk about this detailed and, frankly, fascinating book for hours, but to save you from boredom, I'm going to try and outline it in, hopefully, under 30 minutes. So, to jump straight on in then, the Denatura Deorum is a work of philosophy written in 45 BC by politician and newfound philosopher Cicero. Cicero was in his 60s when he wrote it, and in a period of intense loss and failure, both in his political and private lives. So in politics, the republic he so ardently loved and fought for was falling to ruins with the dictatorship of his frenemy, Julius Caesar, who, by the way, had only in the last few years allowed Cicero to return home to his family and to Rome after his life in shame and exile. So Cicero had been retired from politics, meaning that he was unwelcome at Senate meetings and large political debates in the Roman Curia, which was a huge personal blow to him because he took so much pride in the fact that he had worked his way up to the top and he could be involved in these political discussions, but no longer. On a more personal level, not only had he recently gone through two divorces, um, which left him completely broke and isolated. The only reason he married his second wife was to be able to afford his first divorce. And then he couldn't stomach being with his second wife, so he divorced her as well. And it just left him completely broke. He was bankrupt, essentially. So not only this, but his beloved daughter, Tullia, who was in her 30s, had just died earlier that year, along with her infant son. These were devastating blows to Cicero, who was nearly obsessed with his daughter and loved her so much. And it sent him into a very deep, dark spiral of depression that you can see through his letters to his friend Atticus. It's really very powerful and emotional. So he was in a very dark place earlier in the year and he was only just starting to resurface from that place when we start to see publications like the Tusculan Disputations and of course the Denatura Deorum. So it's pretty safe to say that this work was written under gloomy circumstances and as I just alluded to in the space between Tullia's death and his own death only a year or two later he wrote 15 philosophical works which is huge. He basically dedicated his entire life to philosophy. So we can kind of understand the Denatura Deorum as one of the first in this larger series. And he's still in a place of depression and anger and upset, which makes more sense when we start to talk about the content. So this is, of course, relevant when we start to look at the book itself. Denatura Deorum in Latin means on the nature of the gods, and it stays incredibly true to the title throughout. The book asks four main questions of its characters. So A, what the gods look like, B, how they behave, C, how they interact with the world, and D, how or why we should worship them. There are four characters involved in this discussion, 
firstly the Cicero himself who writes the introduction uh, from the first person and then he leaves the narrative. So although he claims to be in the room with everyone else, he doesn't actually say anything until the very end of the book. So you hear from Cicero right at the start and then literally a sentence right at the end. But nowhere else in the book do you hear Cicero's voice, which is interesting in of itself. Secondly, you have Cotta, whose house the discussion is set in. So he's the host. Cotta is a new academic sceptic, hearkening from the school founded by Plato, whose main theology centres on the idea that he can't know anything, and so he should be sceptical of anyone trying to claim that they do know things. So in other words, he is a professional devil's advocate. Next is Valeus, who is an Epicurean, and thirdly, there's Balbus, who is a Stoic. So the first book of the Denatura Deorum contains three main elements. The first is the introduction from Cicero, the second is Valeus talking about Epicureanism, and the third is Cotta refuting what Valeus says. So in my opinion, Cicero's introduction to the work is one of the most interesting and carefully crafted pieces of writing in late Republican Rome because of what it reveals about Cicero's own state of mind at that time. But to avoid my irrelevant but excited ramblings, I'm actually going to leave that out of the podcast for now because I could talk about it forever. If you're interested, be sure to comment below and I may be able to shed some light on it without going too deeply. <laughs> but moving on to Valeus. So the Epicureans have a really wacky philosophical belief, which feels surprisingly modern considering it was popular well over 2000 years ago. So in short, they believed that the whole universe was made up of tiny atoms which could flow and change depending on energy, which itself is incredible. Like to think this was over 2000 years ago and these people are talking about atoms. Their gods were anthropomorphic, so they looked like humans, but they were completely idle. So in other words, they could not care less about the mortal world. Uh, the mortal world's problems or its sufferings or its prayers literally had nothing to do with it. A lot of people associate Epicureanism with hedonism because another large part of their philosophy centred around pleasure. So in their view, the gods should be imitated in their idleness. So they created humans with built-in senses for what feels good and what feels bad. We know, for instance, that being drunk feels good, but doing work feels boring and exhausting and bad. So they thought that we should use those senses, those kind of key markers, to determine how we should live our lives. So why would certain things universally feel good to humans if we weren't meant to be doing it? So as a result, the Epicureans often only did what made them feel good, which for many people meant sex, drugs and rock and roll as a kind of philosophical lifestyle choice. As Cicero and Cotta point out, however, this isn't exactly helpful to Roman society or in line with how Romans believed they should be acting. So in the final section of book one, Cotta stages an absolute and brutal takedown of the Epicurean philosophy, leaving no stone unridiculed. 
This is massively embarrassing for Valeus, who is forced to admit that Epicureanism doesn't bring us any closer to an understanding of what the gods are actually like. So, whereas book one is unofficially divided into three parts and feels quite busy, book two is given entirely to Balbus and his explanation of the Stoic philosophy. One thing to notice about the Stoics is that to a modern reader, this philosophy may feel particularly Christian in flavour. The later Christians adapted ancient Stoicism to their new doctrine, which is why some of it may feel a little bit familiar but it does have ancient roots in Athens and Greece. So Balbus talks about the four causes of Cleanthes as to how the idea of the gods is implanted into the minds of people and so therefore why they exist. The first is that we have a pre-knowledge of future events. We have this predicting power of uh, fortune telling and divination, which were popular practices of the time. Number two, the great advantages we enjoy from nature. So this is your very typical, nature is beautiful and we are alive to enjoy it. Therefore, we find it beautiful and it has to be beautiful because it was created by the gods. Number three, the terror with which the mind is affected by thunder, tempests and things like that. So on the flip side, how we can be so hugely terrified of nature at the same time. So when big natural disasters happen, the wrath of the gods makes us realise that, oh God, yeah, they really are there. And finally, number four, um, the order and the regularity of the universe. So again, if you've ever studied Christianity at any length, the idea that, you know, it's, it's almost like Paley's watch, right? The idea that because the universe is so ordered and because it makes sense, Therefore, there's this implication that it was created by someone. So Balbus further argues that the world or the universe itself and all of its parts are possessed of reason and wisdom. So there's a mind or a common sense about the world that we can all relate to and understand naturally as human beings and part of the world. So interestingly, Balbus's gods do not take anthropomorphic forms, so they don't look like humans, but they look more like orbs like planets let's say because a sphere is a perfect and eternal shape with no corners or edges or you know ending really also Balbus's gods are providential which means they do interact with the world and with people's lives but they are omnibenevolent so evil is enacted by man but not by god and this is in stark contrast to the generally accepted view of the Roman pantheon. So Roman religion was built on a concept called the Pax Deorum, peace with the gods, in which worship was given to the gods to keep them happy, basically, so that they would not enact wrath on the people. So if I sacrifice something to you, you won't make a drought and I can have nice crops in the autumn, for instance. So if the gods were benevolent, as the Stoics say, then the concept behind the Pax Deorum kind of falls apart. And so therefore, there's no actual need for worship. So Balbus's response to this issue is to suggest that we should worship the gods out of rever reverence. Sorry, can't get that word out. Um, i.e. because they deserve it, not because we want to get anything in return for our worship. So whilst this is quite nice in theory, it is completely 
out of the ordinary for the Roman psyche because they lived in this do-at-desk culture of giving to receive, basically. So in other words, why would you give a carpet seller money if you weren't going to buy a carpet? Because he deserves it? Does he deserve it more than you do? Book three is therefore dedicated to Cotter's rebuttal of Stoicism. Frustratingly and quite tragically, a large portion of this final book has actually been lost, probably about a third of it, which is quite a substantial chunk, meaning that we can never really see all of the arguments against Stoicism. So some believe that its loss was accidental and it's just with time parts of it have been lost. But others conspire that actually it was destroyed on purpose by later Christian readers who didn't wish for Stoicism, which, as we remember, a lot of their philosophy was based on. They didn't want Stoicism to be made redundant or irrelevant or too heavily criticised. And so they purposely removed some of book three. But at the end of the day, we won't know either way. So it's just an interesting thing to speculate. So of what we have left, one of Cotter's main attacks is to use the problem of evil. So why do these loving and all-powerful gods allow for suffering? Why do they allow good things to happen to bad people and bad things to happen to good people? Equally, um, Cotter spends an inordinate amount of time discussing Roman mythology and rituals, using Stoic methodology to show that actually they too, in contrast, make just as much sense as Stoicism does, and so neither can be trusted entirely. The work ends with the very prominent line, Here the conversation ended and we parted, Valeus thinking that Cotter's discourse to be truer, while I felt that that of Balbus approximated more nearly to a semblance of truth. This is why the book is called A Negative Dialectic. Dialectics were a common way of writing philosophy in both the ancient and the modern world. So as we've seen here, it involves a scene that has two or more people in a lengthy discussion over some philosophical topic. One by one, each speaker will present their opinion and then it's the job of the rest of the group, or certainly the lead speaker, to test the truth of said statement rationally. What makes the Denatura Deorum a negative dialectic is that they never come to an appropriate answer or a conclusion. The conversation finished with no real progress being made on the matter. The Denatura Deorum is undoubtedly negative about Roman religion, and in its own way, it creates a reality where Roman religion is flawed and without meaning, and there's no point in it and it should be removed. This is naturally frustrating for the reader, as they expect to be told the correct answer one way or another, and certainly not to have their own religion completely decimated in front of their eyes. But it is an effective teaching technique. So many believe, including Cicero himself, that Cicero was one of the first people in Rome to translate ancient Greek into Latin. Previously, the only people versed in philosophy were necessarily those of higher status who were taught to read Greek. By translating Greek philosophy into his native tongue, he was opening the conversation to a much wider audience. In that regard, it may have been wise to not come across as too dogmatic in his approach. So by presenting a negative, 
controversial and open-ended work, Cicero is almost daring his contemporary readers to lash out against him, to argue back. It is the proverbial fight me of the ancient world. And so it's forcing people to think about philosophy in a new and uniquely Roman way. As far as we're aware, Cicero was one of the first ever Roman theologians as opposed to Greek. And the Denitore Deorum's account of Stoicism and Epicureanism is one of the only pieces of evidence we have for it in the ancient world that is this well preserved and this well applied to actual ancient life as opposed to just as is, like textbook style. But the significance of the Denitore Deorum spans much more widely than his local audience. In the mid-300s, one of the early patristic fathers, called Lactantius, used the Denitore Deorum's negativity about its own religion to decimate the final dregs of Roman paganism, in inverted commas. The work has also been used during the Enlightenment era and beyond. It's a particular favourite of David Hume and John Locke's. Voltaire, who's a famous French historian and philosopher, called the Denitore Deorum one of the most beautiful books ever produced by the wisdom of humanity. So well respected and important was the Denitore Deorum that in 1811 a fourth book was discovered and published by one P. Serafinus. This was huge, it caused shockwaves throughout the entire sort of academic community across Europe but it was soon discovered to be a blatant forgery and so wasn't used any further than that. So whilst I wish I could go on and on in more detail about the Denitore Deorum, I will finish this summary here. So I hope that this introduction to this incredible work has been enough to hook your interest in it. As a reminder to my AS class, please make sure that you have notes on the podcast and your task now is to go away and research something about this podcast to create a one-page research document. It can be on the Denitore Deorum itself, it can be on ancient philosophy, Cicero or anything equally related. Next time, I'm going to have a look at ancient death and grief through the eyes of the ancient people. See you there.